Alrighty, welcome to Outrageously Unnecessary. I'm your host, Haley. And over there is my co-host, Steven. Hey, what's going on, guys? Oh, for once you didn't follow through <laughs> with the... Hi, Steven. You know, honestly, um, it's because I didn't even think about it. But next time, don't worry. I I'll, think it's I'll be prepared. I think it's because this time <laughs> I didn't say, say hi, Steven. I didn't, oh, that's true. I didn't lead you up for that that's one. That's right. Yeah, you didn't set me up. That's all right, though. <laughs> So, uh, we are a little bit late on uh, our newfound schedule, but nothing to be surprised there. Uh, we are very hectically getting our lives together. I'm moving. I don't like boxes. Um, I walked my dog for the first time tonight. It's been... <laughs> wow. Not the first time ever, but like the first time in a couple of days, and... She deserved it. I feel really bad for her. Was Strudel like chopping at the bit? Like, come on, mom, oh get me outside. God. Yes, she was like, she has been trained to not pull. But then uh-huh. like the moment that I put her leash on her, she was just like, let's go. And I'm like, oh, God, no, please. <laughs> I don't have the energy for this. <laughs> but <laughs> had to had to revamp up that energy for tonight's show. Um, so. Anyways, how you been, my boy? No, I have been pretty good. Um, a lot has happened uh, since I've gotten back from Gen Con. Well, I was at Gen Con last weekend. Uh, if any of our listeners were there, hello. Sorry, I didn't get to say hi to you. There was literally so many people there. Haley, I, I wish I could just describe just the sheer grandeur and the sheer terror of being in a building that normally, if it's full of people, you should feel fine. But even with the size and scope, we were all packed in there like sardines anywhere you try to go. So yeah, it was just constant, like constant, like mild panicking, constant, like just social anxiety. I Um, was going to say it's a, it's a social, it's an introvert's worst nightmare, but also their best dream because nerd merch is everywhere. Yeah. There was like 600 plus vendors of anything you could possibly want um, it was phenomenal. Um, of course, I got to see Critical Role live. That was um, so cool. amazing. For those of you who don't know, Critical Role Live is a uh, a live streaming Dungeons and Dragons show where a bunch of nerdy ass voice actors, led by Matthew Mercer, sit around and play Dungeons and Dragons each week. And a couple years back, they decided they wanted to do a live show, and of course, it sells out very very quickly. It's become a huge thing. Um, I'm sure you have realized that D&D has become a lot bigger in culture now over the last, oh, I'd say probably less five, six years or so. And um, obviously, David, one, one you're of, rambling. I know. We cater to nerds. I know. I'm rambling. At least, sorry, my uh, sorry, listeners. I'm I'm under the assumption that all of you guys are nerds because you're here listening to, um, well, history trivia specifically yeah. <laughs> about rich people. So I'm I'm under the assumption that you love a good story. So in yep. any case, I feel like we need a nickname for listeners because uh, there's there's a new podcast that I found that they call their uh, listeners history hoes. Nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, and it makes me laugh. But Ooh, uh, let's think of some names know. and put a poll up there. On Twitter. Yeah, I just I don't know. I we'll come up with some stuff. I'll put a poll up on Twitter. Go follow us on Twitter if you want to see any of my polls. Uh, I do them frequently. Yes. Uh, so, anyways, <clears throat> let's get this let's get this show on the road. Yep. So, Stephen, guess what? 
I'm first. Yes, you are. I remember. Yay. Okay. So mine is a little bit unorthodox in that money is not necessarily getting spent in this situation. Okay. But it is about a woman who is possibly the best and saddest case of gold digging that the world has ever known. Oh, boy. Yes. So let us begin. On March 5th, 1931, a staff member of the Herald Square Hotel in New York City heard the small cries of help coming from a room that no staff member had been inside for 24 years. The cries were coming from a 93-year-old woman named Ida Wood, and she was calling for help because her sister had fallen ill. Uh, Ida and her sisters had moved into their room at the Herald Square Hotel in 1907, and they hadn't left it since. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so they have been in there for 24 years. Like, haven't left they... to do anything, to like go shop, go like see people, nothing, just like... No. Wow. They have never left for 24 years. Wow. So... Obviously, the hotel staff were like, we got to go in there and see what's going on. And upon opening up the room, they found some shit. So I'll get to that in just a second. Let's let's backtrack. Let's rewind. I'm picturing like the rewind scene in Emperor's New Groove where you like freeze frame it. And then. Yep. Uh, like, yep. And then I like, just like completely like rewind. Like you, you see all the action, <laughs> but it's just a blur. And then it gets to the, the top of the uh, the top of the uh, the mystery. Yeah. Yes. Let's, let's find out how we became a llama. Um, so basically, Ida got to this point in life through good old-fashioned gold digging. She came to New York at the age of 19 in 1857. Mm. She told everyone that she was the daughter of uh, a wealthy New Orleans family, the Mayfields. And uh, she came to New York with her sights set on a better life. Uh, and how better to do that for a girl with uh, no prospects than to get oneself a sugar daddy. So, mm. yes, she uh, she pretty much locked in on her target, who was the 37-year-old brother of New York City's current mayor, or mayor at the time, rather. Uh, his name was Benjamin Wood, the brother, not the mayor. I don't know what the mayor's name was. Obviously, his last name, I think, was Wood. Okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'll take your word for it. Benjamin Wood is who she's after. Got it. Uh, She wrote him, remind you, like, he is almost 20 years her senior. She writes him probably one of the best letters I have ever read. It's dated uh, May 28th, 1857. Mr. Wood, sir. Having heard of you often, I venture to address you from hearing a young lady, one of your former loves, speak of you. She says that you are fond of new faces. I fancy that I am uh, that. Oh, I fancy that as I am new in the city and in affairs de cour, that I might contract an agreeable intimacy with you of as long a duration as you saw fit to have it. I believe that I am not extremely bad looking nor disagreeable. Perhaps <laughs> I love that. What I'm a not way extremely to bad yourself. looking. Oh my gosh. <laughs> She's really selling herself here, I think. 
uh, perhaps not quite as handsome as the lady with you at present, but I know a little more, and there is an old saying, knowledge is power. If you wish to interview, or if you wish an, gosh, I can't get this sentence out. If you would wish an interview, address a letter to number Broadway, P.O. New York, stating what time we may meet. So after that delightful little letter, uh, Mr. Wood was like, yeah, yeah, I do want to meet you. And then decided to have her be his mistress for 10 years. Oh, my goodness. Like, not even married. A mistress. A mistress. No, he was already married. This is my side hustle. No, this was his side hustle. She knew that she couldn't marry him because he was married. But she knew, like, you could be my sugar daddy. I'll go out to parties with you. I'm sure that your current wife is just, like, the worst. Be with me. (laughs) I don't know what she said to him in their meeting. But, like, again, good old-fashioned gold digging. Fair. And, um... So, yeah, mistress for 10 years. She became an extreme socialite. Uh, He took her out dancing. He took her to meet Abraham Lincoln in 1859. What? Um, So this is before uh, Abraham Lincoln was president, because obviously he was president in 1860. So he was on the campaign trail. Yep, yep, yep. Um, She would uh, spend his money and would buy things like up and down Fifth Avenue. She was loaded, but um, she was kind of an open secret to the world. Everyone knew that like, oh, yeah, that's Ben's mistress. We love her. Right. Um, This was right before the Civil War, wouldn't it be? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And she's remember 19 years old in 1857. So early 20s. Got it. Um, And allow me to show you a photograph of uh, her. She's actually she's quite pretty, but it's really funny. It's a side by side photo of her and Ben. And Ben just looks remarkably old, even though he's only 37 years old. Like, I don't know why he looks so old. I think it's because his mustache is white. (laughs) Probably so, and because he has a, mus- uh, a mustache. Oh, she's she's not bad looking at all. <laughs> nor disagreeable. Nor she is nor disagreeable. <laughs> I would not consider myself bad looking nor disagreeable. <laughs> okay, all right. No, the phrase was extremely bad looking. <laughs> extremely yes, extremely bad looking. Yeah, she is okay. She is not extremely bad looking by any by any measure. She is. I think she's quite pretty. She has, she's like wearing, um, I was about to call it an antebellum dress, but obviously it's not because it's not after the war. Right. Um, But it's got like the big poofs and she has the long ringlets and she has really uh, dark brown chocolatey hair, like big forehead. I'll Mm -hmm. say that, but. It could have been just the picture or the angle. Absolutely. I mean, that was a little rude of me. I'm sorry. I, uh, I, God rest your soul. Um, <laughs> what type of dress is that where, where it hangs like that? Where, where it's cut, uh, where it's cut, where it just sits across the chest and the, the arms. It's not a halter and it's not, it's not a shoulderless dress. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's one of those where it's, um, in current days, it would have uh, stretchy, stretchy at the top, so it would like yes. hold onto your onto your tits and the sides of your uh, arms. Yes. But like shoulders are left completely bare. Yes. Yeah. 
those and, those I sexy know, shoulders. She's rocking it. Those sexy, sexy shoulders. Mm, show me that ankle, Ida. <laughs> show um, me that ankle. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, she was an open secret, and um, basically, it was assumed that she would uh, marry Benjamin if his wife ever died, and then the wife died. <laughs> And after 10 years of mistresshood, I have to know how soon after she said that, did she die? Um, I I suspect I'll play. I don't know. But (laughs) remember that she was Ben's mistress for 10 years. So she didn't kill Ben's wife for at least 10 years, if at all. Um, It's because she was playing the long game. (laughs) She's she's doing that long con. Those gold diggers, crafty sons of bitches. Yeah. So. Uh, basically, uh, they got married after Ben's wife died. So she is now, uh, the true wife, uh, of, of Ben. Uh, turns out they had a daughter named Emma. No one really cared that Emma was 10 years old at the time of their wedding. Um, (laughs) that didn't get a reaction from you. I literally don't know what to say. 10 years old at the time of their wedding. <laughs> I know. And she I am, was their mistress for 10 years. I am literally speechless. All right, moving on. So Ida worked very hard to get to this lifestyle and she wasn't about to lose it. So during her mistresshood and her being uh, Ben's proper wife, she had a deal running with him. As it turns out, Benjamin had an extreme gambling problem. Mm-hmm. And Ida was crafty as fuck, and she started waiting outside of the gambling halls. And when Benjamin oh. wins, he has to give her half of his winnings. <gasps> and when Benjamin loses, he's charged a perc- he's charged a losing fee by Ida. So it is <gasps> always a win-win situation for Ida. <laughs> what? Why did he comply with that? Because he was filthy fucking rich. He's the he's the brother of the mayor. Like he comes from a wealthy family and he felt that it was he knew that Ida was good with money. So he felt confident enough being like, yes, dear, sorry, dear, because she didn't get in the way of his gambling. She just allowed him to keep gambling as long as he paid her. (laughs) And so so Ben got to enjoy what he enjoyed. She got to make money off of it. So, you know, um, now that I think more about it, that's not quite a bad deal. No, it's not a bad deal at all. It is it is a win win situation no matter what is happening. (laughs) So usually what ended up happening was that Ben had to sign over one of his properties to her name. And so, okay, yeah, so (laughs) basically fast forward to 1900, Benjamin Wood dies. He has no estate left to his name because he gambled it away to Ida. He has signed literally everything away to to Ida. So when he dies, she's now in her 60s and rich as fuck. She is so rich. Yeah. Um, So she has dozens of estates. She has all of the money that he ever gave her while, while gambling. Um, and then she also took over the New York Daily News, which apparently uh, Benjamin Wood owned. Uh, she ran it for like a year, but she decided that she didn't really want to run a newspaper or like wasn't very good at it. So she sold it. 
for uh in the in the 1900s 340 thousand dollars which oh, guess how much that a, is in today's money that's a lot of money in today's standards so three hundred forty thousand then oh yeah that's, guess, that, guess that's, how much guess how probably, much that is today that's probably upwards of like 80 million no it was only 9.2 but <laughs> uh, okay still 9.2 million 9.2 million lot. that's a lot of yeah. money that's so, so she has money. all these properties she has 9.2 million dollars uh, she then decides to travel the world with her sister, Mary, and her daughter, Emma. And in 1907, uh, she runs into an old baker, banker friend. And the banker friend shares some worries about the U.S. banking system and the economy. <laughs> she, uh, she's, uh, or basically, she hears his slight worries as, I need to take all of my money out of the bank and become a recluse. <laughs> That's what she heard. <laughs> That's what she heard. The banker friend, which, by the way, the U.S. economy doesn't even crash until 1929. Right. So she chose in 1907 to become a recluse. And <sighs> yeah. So basically, uh, she withdraws all of her money, takes her sister Mary, her daughter Emma, and herself to the Herald Square Hotel. She buys a room and stays in their suite with her with her uh, family until 1931. They do not ever leave. Until how, how do they get hmm? food? How do they get supplies? I will That's get there. Okay. It it really and truly this is this is a sad story. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's it's Got it. sad okay. and it's it's disappointing with the fact that this woman who was such a fucking queen became a recluse for 30 years uh. and never left and just it's really and truly tragic. Sounds that way. Yeah. The way that she lived was tragic, but let's continue about how how she how she did live when she was a recluse. So, um Remember back at the beginning of the story uh, when I said that Ida was calling for help because her sister Mary was um, dying? Yes. Um, basically, the hotel staff, doctors, and police all came running. And they discovered the inside of this suite that hasn't been touched by anyone but, uh, but Ida and her family for 24 years. Uh, the hotel suite is absolutely covered in garbage. 24 years worth of rubbish that they have not thrown away. Uh, amongst the garbage, the people going in and out of the suite begin finding piles of money. Just piles of it. There was $247,000 in $1,000 and $5,000 bills that was just tucked in a shoebox. There were large trunks all stuffed with cash and expensive fabrics. Uh, there was exquisite jewelry, there was gold, there were, uh, certificates that were ranging from a thousand to ten thousand dollars dating back to 1860 that was just lying around. Um, there was also a gold-headed ebony stick that was a present from the fifth president, James Monroe. Oh, wow. Ida's nightgowns were lined with thousand dollar notes 
all of her nightgowns, she had pinned all of her money to the inside of her clothes because she was afraid she would lose it. Um. Oh my gosh. I know. It's God, isn't it tragic? That's so sad. I know. So she had all of this money stashed away and she was so afraid of losing all of it because of the comment from that banker. And she lost 24 years of her life as a recluse. So basically she, you had asked how, how, how did they live? She and Mary and Emma lived off of delivered groceries of evaporated milk, crackers, bacon, eggs, and milk, which they had created a makeshift stovetop in the bathroom to, to eat all of that. She would also very occasionally ask for Cuban cigars. So she would, she would shell out some extra money for Cuban cigars. But okay. they lived off of evaporated milk and crackers. And the, the amazing thing is that every time someone would... Um, every time that like a delivery boy would come and deliver either a newspaper or their groceries or something like that. She would tip him a nickel and say, I'm sorry, this is all I have left. What in the actual, are you serious? Yeah. She is literally the worst person. She was, she was sick. She was just, she was, she was sick, but it's, she, Somewhere she hits 60 and just her marbles flew out all over the floor. She lost them forever, I should think. But the amazing thing is the fact that her daughter and her sister went along with it. Yeah. That that is unbelievable. So let's let's wrap this up then. So to top off our very sad ending, uh, people upon people came out of the woodwork to lay claim to her money. Uh, Basically, all sorts of people were going, oh, I'm her long lost uncle from Peru. I deserve some of this cash. And she didn't die until like two years later, man. Right. Uh, But all these people, she's like, I'm not related to you. But people were still, hundreds of people were just showing up and being like, no, no, I want some of that. You have like a million dollars lying around. Can I have some? And, um, but, but one of the things is that while people, also they, they moved her, uh, to a suite, literally one floor below her, uh, current suite, uh-huh. Um, I think because they deemed the, the, the one she was in a health hazard and they were like, yeah. take, take a new yeah. one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she was still living in the Herald Square Hotel. And um, but when people were cleaning out her suite, uh, they were able to actually piece together her life before she came to New York. She had saved uh, like newspaper clippings and birth certificates and everything like that. Um that they pieced together a story that she wasn't from New Orleans from a wealthy family at all. She was a poor Irish immigrant mm. who came over at the age of 19 and figured out a way to live her life. And she knew what she wanted. And as it turns out, it was later discovered her daughter, Emma, was not her daughter. It was her little sister 
who once she had money, she had her little sister Emma shipped over from oh, the wow. UK to give her a better life, her and her sister Mary. Uh, okay. But she just posed Emma as her and Ben's daughter, right. which Ben actually knew all about her life and he didn't care. But obviously to present to society, he had to go along with the story of like, oh yeah, she was a Mayfield. Mm. And That's um, insane. Yeah, so poor Irish girl came to America, completely falsified her identity, came out on top until she didn't. And she was looking for a better life for her and her sisters, and she got it. She fucking got it. She got millions of dollars and property, and she was on top of it for, like, 40 years. Yeah, she's on top of it for, like, 40 years. And then until she she lost her marbles. Paranoia set in. So it's kind of an awful tragedy, but it's also fucking amazing. Like, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. It's it's definitely amazing for someone literally coming over here with nothing. And of course, you think about all the immigrants, you know, from Ireland and just from overseas during, you know, the late, the yeah, 1800s and then of course late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, for someone I mean, to do what Irish, she did is yeah, phenomenal. The Irish retreated so goddamn poorly for oh, so absolutely. long. Oh, so if yeah. she'd come over and been like, yeah, I'm Irish. Oh my God, no. She would have She would have had the worst possible life. Yeah, yeah. There's no way she would have been able to to. I want to know gain. how she hid her accent. Oh, man. Well, depending on the ship, uh, yeah, that she, the, the ship that she probably was carried over was probably most likely worked by, by Americans. Um, so she probably heard the sailors talk and you know if you, if you want something bad enough you'll do whatever it takes mhm so that's literally that's literally the i think the uh if there were, if there was a biopic like an actual story written about her i think it should be titled whatever it takes cuz uh she she did it she did do it and it's fucking tragic it's absolutely tragic but yeah. god her gambling scheme was so good <laughs> Oh, yeah. the ultimate gold digging. She's like, hello, uh, sugar daddy, dear. Let's go. Um, you just lost a good portion of your money. Now you owe me money. <laughs> I, I just love and respect her so much. And I wish she sure. had gotten a better end. <laughs> sure. You know, but at the end of the day. She was a hoarder. Enough said. She was. She was a hoarder. <laughs> she was a hoarder of fine jewels and gold. <laughs> and thousand dollar bills, which I didn't know we printed thousand dollar bills, nor five thousand dollar bills. I no. thought those were movie yeah. things. Yeah, no, no. That the, the, for a short run, for a short time, right before the stock market crashed. Um, I can't remember exactly how long, but yeah, they printed those larger bills to, to help compensate um I think if I remember correctly, I think they were trying to tell like because there was a shortage of like paper and things. So I think they wanted to help kind of cut down on paper, you know, for printing a lot of money. That's maybe one of the reasons. But I do remember for a little bit of time they they printed that. That is who was on it? Who was on the thousand dollar bill and the five thousand dollar bill? That's a good question. I don't know that. I do not know. That should be something to look up. Hold on, let's. Well, how about you 
uh, start on uh, your story while I yeah. do a quick googly oogly of uh, who's on the thousand dollar bill. <laughs> I promise uh. I'll be paying attention as I'm. Uh... Oh, I'm sure you will. No worries. Oh, so, Grover Cleveland. Grover Cleveland. How about that? I mean, he is hardcore Gilded Age president, so sure. appropriate. Very appropriate. Sure. On, on both the thousand and five thousand. Uh, no, he's on the thousand. Let's find out the five thousand. I'm sure this audio is just absolutely riveting for everyone. <laughs> just. <laughs> Ooh, James Madison. James Madison is on the five thousand dollar bill. Got it. Got it. So <clears throat> here in America, or let's just say, let's just say the world, let's just go big. Okay. What That's do you, broad. Yeah. yeah. So America, then yeah, we're going to zoom out, go to the world. What would you say is probably one of the most profitable industries in the world today? Industries? Sure. Yeah. I'll label it industries. Well, wait, no. What did you say? I couldn't hear you. Yes. I said industries. Oh, Okay. Um, oil, I would probably say mining. Oil. No, I yeah. would say oil. Okay. What about, um, more on the less legal side of things? Oh, uh, slave trade. Mm. Is that too dark? Was that, was that too dark? <laughs> no, no, not the slave trade. Uh, hopefully there is, is there still slave trade? Oh yeah, there, yeah, there's, there's, there's human Steven, trafficking. Steven, there are still slave trades. They're very yeah. bad. Say <sighs> no to sex trafficking. Yay, say no. Uh, I was thinking more of the drug industry. Oh, that was the obvious choice. I went very dark. Okay. That's okay. Um, well, I would actually like to tell you about... Someone who in early America was one of the first drug titans. Oh my God. In America. And he I'm was so also labeled as America's first multimillionaire. One of the first. Fuck me. <laughs> yes, Stephen, I love you. Yes. So let's dive into this drug frenzied multimillionaire. So the man in question, his name is John Jacob, not Jingleheimer Smith, mind you. I was going to say. <laughs> but a John Jacob Astor. Okay. John Jacob Astor, um, after working alongside his father in his family's dairy business for, for several years, um, okay. Astor, who grew up in Germany, he left at the age of 16 to join his brother in London. His brother had already moved there and began working in, in several different, you know, odd jobs. Um, for five years, he helped uh, his his brother manufacture and sell musical instruments. It's kind of a, All right. a good, you know, honest. That's wholesome. That's a very yeah, honest living. Honest, wholesome living. Before he eventually traveled to the United States in 1784 to serve as the uh, the U.S. a U.S. business agent. What does that even mean? That is a very broad title. That's um, the most generic of titles. No, actually, I read that wrong. So the 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 musical instrument business, he went over to the U.S. to to become like a like a, a an abroad agent slash salesperson for oh okay the, the, he's his the brother's rep. business. Yes, yeah, he's okay. he's an international rep for the company. Got so, it. So, uh, and this was um, in 1784. He was just 21. When he left his brother in London to come to America. So young he's just kid. A baby. 
Pretty. Just a just a just a big kid, just a young kid. So uh, once stateside, um, he also worked with one of his older brothers, Henry, uh, who was a su- successful butcher in the Bowery area of New York. Okay. And then he also briefly worked as a baker. So a lot of different things, a lot of different jobs, um, especially at an early age, uh, he became really disillusioned with all these different lines of work. And so Astor, who through his his jobs and just meeting different people, he actually began to start trading furs with the local Native American tribes. All right. So and so when when that when a treaty you know opened up between the states and Great Britain, they opened up a lot of new markets uh, in the um, the early 1790s. So Astor he kind of sprung and he kind of just got on top of the action and he established himself as an exporter for one of Canada's premier fur companies. So by the end of the decade, okay, so he's going to be in his 30s. Okay. What year is this? This is like this is 1790, 1791. So All actually, right, no. So we are in the beginnings of America. Got it. Yeah. So he's like 28, 29 about this point. Got it. So by the so, so by the end of uh, of this decade, he's in his 30s. He was worth about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in 1790. Today, he would be worth five million. Oh my God! You did that trading furs. I mean, for just was trading the most, furs. That was the most lucrative like thing to do at the time. So I well, get yeah, it. But at the absolutely. same time, Jesus, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Which was interesting. Not to get off on a little side tangent, but I know like the French and Indian War that was earlier in the 1700s. Um, so, and I know that a lot of the uh, the French uh, there was a lot of fur trappers and stuff that worked you know, with uh, a couple of the. Uh, uh, the different Indian Indian tribes there, and then of course there was the war and everything happened after that. So I'm just I'm really curious about how that worked. A kid from London, or actually a kid from Germany, moved to London, come to the states, and got into the fur business. I'd be really curious to find out more about that. Anyways, I mean as long as as long as you have a translator or you yourself learn the language and create a good relationship with the tribes, like. Yeah. Uh, there were certainly very friendly tribes because a lot of the times, um, what ended up happening was the natives made, that's how they made their money was through right, trade. Exactly. And so they yeah. had to have those relationships. So I get it. Sure. So early 1800s, a few years later, uh, he expanded his business and, um, he, uh, started actually establishing some trade routes between China and Europe because remember in the early 1800s, China was starting to become really friendly with America. A lot of trade happening back and forth, tea, uh, imports, exports, a lot of different things happening. Um, and so uh, when the 1807 Embargo Act led to a lot of closure of many different European ports and American ships, uh, Astor, he kind of turned westward and he opened up one of his uh, first businesses in 1808 called the American Fur Company. And it followed soon after there was a subsidiary under that that he opened up called the Pacific Fur Company. So in 1811, he's got his fur company and he is uh, got a hold on this on the, this region of America's fur trade. But it didn't last long when there was a war that broke out between the United States and Great Britain in 1812. Uh, the men at Fort Astoria, where he was at. Um, oh, yeah. The fur company established Fort Astoria, Astoria named after Astor. Uh, yeah, he named a Ford after him. Anyways, selling the business, um, he sold all his holdings to a Canadian-based company. So um, a lot of kind of downturn happened in his life. Um, throughout this war of 1812, he almost lost all 
of his fortune due to the British coming in. They wanted to occupy the forts and they took over control of his fur, uh, his fur trading. So he really wasn't sure what to do. Jingleheimer. I know. But he built himself up from nothing. I know. And then, yeah, so then Britain came over and ruined it, you know, where he came from. But I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the story of Britain. <laughs> you can sum up the entirety of, of the yes. uh, British Empire in, <laughs> in one phrase. <laughs> and then Britain came over and ruined it. <laughs> and ruined everything. If you're, if you're from England right now, we love you. So... After the war ended in 1815, Astor went back and he lobbied to the U.S. Congress for a series of legislative bills that were designed to prevent a repeat of his losses from the Pacific Northwest when Britain came over and occupied that area of the Pacific. When Congress passed, uh, he pa- they passed an 1816 bill that barred non-U.S. citizens from owning fur business in the U.S. territory. The same Canadian company that had purchased Fort Astoria, so they're a Canadian company that came in, and after everything was closed out, the war ended, a Canadian company purchased the fort from Astor. Um, they were forced to sell all their holdings to Astor. So non-U.S. citizens, so Canada could not legally own that fur business because Astor was a U.S. citizen at this time. Okay. At this so, time, does he change? No, 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 no. I'm saying at this time he, he he was a citizen. So Canada could not legally hold those properties because of the bill that Congress passed in 1816, which barred non-U.S. citizens from owning a fur business. Got it. Got it. Okay. So six years later, Astor also received additional aid from the government when Congress voted to close all trading outposts operated by foreign governments, leaving Astor with a monopoly on the fur trade. So all of this worked out in his favor. The war actually worked out in his favor because Congress got very, very restrictive and banned a lot of uh, of most of all of outside um, export import stuff. I get knocked down, but I get up I again. again. You're never going to keep me down. <laughs> so here's where we get to the fun stuff. Okay. So while he continued to lobby Congress for support, Astor decided to turn his attention to something that he found to be much more interesting and much more seductive and much more lucrative. Seductive. In 1816, he purchased 10 tons of opium. I don't think you even understand how wide my eyes just went. He like goddamn dinner plates. Ten, ten tons. tons of opium from the Ottoman Empire, so modern oh day my Turkey. God, yep. And he shipped it to Canton, China, yep. smuggling it aboard his American fur company ships. Despite oh the fact God. that China had banned opium. 17 years earlier. So in Well, yeah. In Do 17 you know what opium did to China? It wrecked them. It fucking wrecked them. Shit, so, that is diabolical. Would you like to know roughly what he spent on those 10 tons of opium, Haley? Yes, I fucking want to know what he spent on 10 tons of opium. So, 
here we go. I want to break it down. A little bit of math involved. It oh. hurt my head, but I, I, I got it figured out. So, in, to, in today's standard, one kilogram of opium is worth about $300 in today's money. Okay. One kilogram, not even a gram, just a kilogram. A kilogram. Okay. And there, and there are 907 kilograms in one ton. Okay. So take that and put that aside for a second. So, So okay. It's 907 times 300, which is not math I feel like doing right now. Continue. So actually we can't take the 300 because that's 300 in today's money. So yes. I looked up what a what just one dollar was was worth, or actually what yeah what 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 a dollar back then would be worth now. So a dollar back in the 1800s was worth about 25 of our dollars today. So what I did was if that factors forward, then the reverse must also be true. So I took 300 and divided by 25, and I got 12. Okay, because 25 goes into 312 times. So right. I put okay. So let's say let's just say. Let's just say he purchased um, one. So, so uh, for one ton, there's 907 kilograms. So that's $12 per kilogram. Okay. Uh-huh. So we're going to take nine, 907 times 12. Okay. So for one ton, he paid $10,884 of his money at that time. So for oh. 10 tons, he paid around $110,000. <gasps> so if we take that. And multiply by 25, he spent $2.7 million in today's money on 10 motherfucking tons of opium. Oh, my God. I don't know why, but that feels like that might be a steal in today's terms, potentially. Like, I mean, probably because, you know, the drug trade now is tens of millions of dollars. You know, we think of cocaine, heroin, all that stuff. You know, I'm I'm sure it's probably still. But back then, that is a lot of your own money. And that didn't even barely, that barely even scratched the surface of his wealth, Haley. That scratched the surface. So. John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. His name is my name, too. Oh, my God. Yeah. You wish your name was his name. I wish. So in in my notes here, uh, part part of this news article, it said that uh, after turning a tidy profit on the uh, illegal enterprise, uh, Astor abruptly ended his involvement in 1819. A tidy profit. Now, what would be considered a tidy profit after spending $100,000? He's had uh, to have tripled it. Yeah, yeah. So he roughly made upwards of $500,000 to $800,000. Fuck this guy. Fuck this guy so much with a cactus. Oh, he made $20 million in our money. And just, and he just hot damn ruined more Chinese lives. <laughs> yes, he did. He, yes, he, he did. sacrificed the Chinese and was like, you remember those opium dens you liked so much? <laughs> Would you like some more? I know you won't do literally anything else for the rest of your life because it's highly addictive and you're just going to sit on your side and and have some opium. I don't know. Do you smoke it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you, you do smoke. You do smoke uh, opium. Yes, you do. It's like that really long pipe and they had to lay down and they had those weird special pillows because being propped on your side made the high that much better. So here is a quote from an article. 
um, that was published um, in the 1930s. It says the extent of Astor's involvement in the continued smuggling of opium into China has yet to be documented. This is as of um, 18... Yeah, 1816, 1817. Okay, so uh, however, we do know that Astor continued to bring the drug also into the port of New York and smuggled it into America Why a few cases at you? a time. Indeed, the April 29th, 1825 issue of the New York Gazette and General Advertiser carried a paid advertisement offering three cases of Turkish opium for sale. And would you like to see this advertisement, Haley? Yes, please. It wasn't <sighs> illegal. It was banned in China, but not it was banned in, in the China, US. But not in the US until, gosh, I think until the late 1800s, early 1900s. So, so take, he, it was perfectly legal for him to just be like, here's, oh my God, the opium antidote. <laughs> the opium antidote. Wait, what does that say? A painless, permanent, and certain cure. The yes. opium habit. <laughs> what? Yeah. I like that it's just next to like a really, so it, it's one of those old timey advertisements. So obviously there's like 20 different fonts happening. And then, uh, and then it's just next to like a sketch of a building. What does the building draw a poppy plant, my dude? <laughs> Unless that's the building where you have to go to receive your opium antidote to cure that's your opium like habit. That's probably like the local drugstore. Is it saying that the opium antidote is a cure for the opium habit? Because that that's paradoxical. <laughs> yes, you need some more opium to cure your opium. <laughs> Got some opium troubles? Well, here's some opium for you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, let's move forward a little bit. So, I can't believe there's more. Yeah, oh yeah, there's more. Um, so... Um, Astor was one of the first Americans known to traffic the drug, um, but he was certainly not the last. Several early American fortunes were actually built on the Chinese opium trade as well. Um, no, yes, um, the grandfather of yes, the grandfather of President FDR, the, his grandfather, also built his fortune on the opium trade as well. Little fun fact. <laughs> Little fun fact. So, um. So John, so John Jacob Astor, uh, he lived his life, you know, never really got into a lot of legal trouble, you know, never, but he spent his money on mostly making his opium trade boom. Um, however, he did die in March of 1848. I say that like, no, he's still alive today. He did die. Like, it was like, it's some marvel. <laughs> he did die. Okay. He's, he's several hundred years old. Yes. Ah, uh, yes. John Jacob Astor, the immortal opioid. So, in March 1848, um, when, he, when he died, his will contained bequests for several charitable groups. So, he was a, he was a uh, philanthropist at the end, towards the end what of is, his life. What is, what is he philanthropizing? Um, he uh, behested uh, approximately four hundred thousand dollars of his money—that's about ten million in today's dollars—so that he could create a free public library to be built oh, in what is good. in what is now the New York's East Village neighborhood. Um, the Damn, Astor that's Library. That's actually a good one. Yeah, I know. Um, 
the Astor Library actually became one of the most well-respected institutions in the city, but it, uh, eventually it started to lack additional funds from the Astor family. So in 1895, the Astor collection merged with that with another philanthropist uh, whose name I will not give you because I'm going to study him and do him next time. Um, but he was a very well-known New York philanthropist. And they eventually merged together and created the New York Public Library System. Well, so the, fuck me. That's wonderful. Yeah, so we Drug have... Money built the New York Public Library System. <laughs> yes. So anytime you, you see pictures, if you ever go to New York and you walk past the public library, you're like, ah, I know what got you here. I know what got you here. I know was, what got you was, here. We can just give a little money. nod and a little wink. And uh, somewhere, we got a wink back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so... Aside from charitable donations, uh, John Jacob Astor left the bulk of his $20 million fortune estimated to be worth more than $100 billion today. Oh. Oh. What? He had $20 million in the 1800s? And that's worth... the opium trade, my dear. Drug money... We'll get you far in life. <laughs> so, God, but damn it didn't end it, there. John Jacob. In 1834, John, uh, the Astor family created what's believed to be actually America's first family trust. So, one of the very oh. first trusts in America, the Astor family. It didn't happen until 1884. Yeah. yeah I would have expected it, it, that was a sooner thing. Huh. 18, 1834, actually. 34, not 84. 34, 34, yep, sorry. 1834. Um, however, the trust was dissolved um, following the death of the last of John Jacob's uh, grandchildren in 1919, with more than a dozen um, Astor descendants eventually sharing in the financial windfall. So John Jacob did a great thing. You know, obviously... You built know, the upon dr- very bad things. Built upon a very bad things, yes. Um, but his children, and I will actually do uh, another session about his children at some point too as well, because I found all sorts of goody good stuff. I was going to say, I see, I recognize the name Aster because I've seen it on Gilded Age lists. Also, I'm yes. fairly certain that our friend Mamie Fish was trying yes. to usurp Mary Aster. Yes, yes, she as, was. As the socialites. So, like, yes. I know that name. Yes. So, um... There was actually only one Aster in the family that actually, and this is this is the sad ending, that did not get to share any of the benefits of the trust at all. Oh, God, what a slap to the because, face. Yeah, I know, because his name was John Jacob Aster IV, who unfortunately went down with, with the Titanic in April 1912. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. He is the only one in the family that did not get to share in any of the wealth of the trust because he unfortunately passed away in the Titanic. But what an ending. That's an awful ending. But like, I what know. an ending. So there you go, listeners. Proof that the drug trade is profitable, but not recommended by your <laughs> by your hosts. <laughs> and opioid epidemic is still continuing to this day so we can thank john jacob jingleheimer schmidt for that one indeed we can oh my god 
I will be posting the, we didn't have very many photos this time, but I will be posting the photos uh, that we shared during our conversations today on our Instagram and our Twitter. Uh, yes. Twitter is at OUnnecessaryPod. Uh, Instagram is at OutrageouslyUnnecessary. If y'all like us, give us, uh, give us a review. Give us a five-star rating wherever you find your podcast. Listen to us. Reach out to us on Twitter to interact with us. I really super duper love uh talking with everybody and if you ever have topics that you want to suggest if you're like hey this guy was nuts you gotta go find out what he made i live for that Mm, indeed Mm -hmm. oh also we should hopefully have merch rolling out sometime soon um yeah yes i i've been designing some stuff maybe some pineapple themed stuff but um also, I've recruited my brother, who is a graphic designer, and more he recruited himself. He saw that I wanted to make t-shirts, and he was like, I'm on board. So, yeah, hopefully that's some soon, so keep your eye out for that. I will announce whatever we have on Twitter, and then go participate in polls if you have something that you want the audience to be called. I'm currently kind of thinking, what about financial fiends? Okay, no, I like it. Financial fiends. I'm thinking no, the something. Pa- the pause, I think, shows you didn't like it, Stephen. Don't. No, it, it, <laughs> don't it's call a, me. No. Okay, fine. I won't call you. I think we should like. It should be. It needs to be a little more catchy. It needs to roll off the tongue. I don't know. History hose was so good, but history miners, the podcast, already took that one. <laughs> oh. We're hopeless. Okay, bye, guys. (laughs) Good night. Thanks for listening.